Welcome to this week's presentation from Bethesda, a church community where anyone can belong. We hope that the following presentation encourages you in your faith journey. Thanks for listening. We've been journeying through a sermon series called I Am. It's all about how we identify as believers here at Bethesda. And today I want to conclude this series by preaching a message called I Am Grace-Filled. I Am Grace-Filled. We're going to pray now and I encourage you to just pray with me. As the weight of this word, uh, this week as I was preparing it, just weighed on my spirit, my heart. Uh, I believe this word is for somebody I know it's for everybody in, in some level. I know it's for me, uh, but uh, it's for somebody here this morning, and I, I've been sensing that, and I want to, can you cover this message along with me in prayer um, that God would have his way? Father, I am so thankful for the opportunity to call upon your name. I pray over every person that's here in the house of God. They, they're not here by happenstance or by chance, but I believe they're here uh, right in the will of God. And so I pray, Lord, that everything that you desire to do, you would do in and through each person. And Father, use me in the process and use your word. Let the message be received. Uh, not what I would have to say, but let what the Spirit of God would have to say to your people be received in Jesus' mighty name. Everyone said. Well, if you have the word of God with you, whether on your iPhone, uh, whether in bonded leather or some other form, uh, I ask you to turn to John's Gospel. You can also follow along on our Version events page and click on that and all the notes are there. If you're not sure where John's Gospel is, it's in the, it's the fourth chapter in the New Testament, or fourth book rather, after Mar Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you still don't know, just there's a table of contents in the front there somewhere uh, that you can find it. John's Gospel, chapter 7, reading the very last verse and then hopping over to chapter 8. It says, everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us um, to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they, may, they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger, he wrote in the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one and beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court and straightening up. Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on. Sin no more. Sin no more. May God bless his word into our hearing this morning. This is one of the most powerful and poignant passages of Scripture that reveals the grace and mercy of God. It's one of the most well-known passages as well. I'm sure if you've grown up in the church, you would have heard this in some form or another. One day Jesus went to the temple and there people came to him. And so he began to teach them and pour into their lives. 
Now you have to understand why the crowds were there in the first place. You see, the Jews celebrated and continue to celebrate to this day several feasts or festivals which were instituted early in Israel's history in the Old Testament, or as recorded in the Old Testament. These were known as, and three of them were, were known as pilgrim festivals, and every Jewish male living uh, in the kingdom of Judah was required to make a pilgrimage uh, to the temple that was in Jerusalem to celebrate and commemorate the feasts, what God had done. The first one was called Pesach, known as the Feast of Passover. The second one was called Shavuot, known as the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And the third one was called Sukkot, uh, known as the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Booths. And here in this tent, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, was just coming to a close. It was actually the eighth and last day of the festival, which was and remains a week-long festival commemorating the 40-year journey of the Israelites in the wilderness. From an agricultural perspective, uh, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, was uh, Israel's, is Israel's Thanksgiving. And it is a joyous harvest festival to celebrate the completion of the agricultural year. And the cool thing about this is that Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, starts tonight. Starts at sundown tonight, and on your calendar, you'll notice it's the same day as our Thanksgiving. And so it aligns uh, perfectly with what we're going to be doing tomorrow. And so while in our time, Sukkot is about to start, in this text, it's just about to finish. Before I move on, let me also add during, that during the Feast of Tabernacles, during Sukkot, two important ceremonies took place. First of all, the Hebrew people carried torches around the temple, illuminating uh, the bright candelabrum uh, along the walls of the temple to remind the Jewish people of how God was with them during their wilderness wanderings and in the, as he was there in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Someone also said that it demonstrated that the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles. Also, the priests would go and draw wealth, uh, water from the pool of Shalom and carried into the temple where it was poured out into a silver basin by the altar. And the priest would call upon the name of the Lord to, to, to provide heavenly water in the form of rain for their supply. And during this ceremony, the people would look forward, forward to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In John's gospel, we see that Jesus attended the Feast of Tabernacles and in light of these two ceremonies, spoke some amazing words during it. It says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood out and stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink for he who believes in me, as the scripture said from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I've heard that text many times. I've never understood the, the connection to this festival. And then in the next morning, following his encounter with the woman who we'll get into in a moment, uh, while the torches were still burning, and bringing light, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, you're waiting on the Messiah to come, but look no further because I am here. I am the light of the world. You are looking for, uh, to heaven for rain from God, but I am sent from God, my Father. And if you believe in me, guess what? You will never, ever thirst again. As the people heard this, John's gospel, chapter 7, he records the responses that Jesus made to those declarations. Some people said, well, man, he's a good man. 
Other people said, I think he's leading the people astray. This is false teaching. Some people said, I think he's a prophet. And yet some in the audience said, he's a heretic, a blasphemer, and this Jesus is nothing but a phony. And then there was some who said, did you hear what he said? He spoke with authority. He is the Christ. He got to be. And then there's others in the congregation, in the crowds who said, man, he's going to mess everything up. We got to kill him. We got to take this Jesus out. And so the crowd was divided as to who Jesus really was and included in the crowd were some groups of religious leaders who wanted to get rid of Jesus and looked at him as a complete threat to their way of, uh, their way of life, their, their, their way of faith. They're, they said, man, if he has followers certain following him, they're going to stop coming here. And there's a whole other reasons why uh, they wanted people to come through the temple. Two groups there were the Pharisees and the scribes who were muttering and complaining and saying things. The Pharisees were committed to keeping the law. They, they, they were, you know, there were 613 laws and they were committed to keeping every last one of them. They were focused on being externally pious, but internally they were filled with pride and often they were filled with pride for their religiosity, for their piousness. It's kind of funny. The chief priests were basically in charge of the temple and had a lot of, a lot of responsibilities. I won't get into it, but they were basically in charge of the temple. And there was another group who was with them known as the scribes who were experts at interpreting the law, the Jewish law, and were most likely lawyers and, and judges. And on the eighth day of this, this festival, which was to be a day of rest, <clears throat> was treated like a Sabbath. Many pilgrims were still in the city who had come to celebrate and they gathered around Jesus who came to the temple just to teach. Right in the middle of his teaching, John records that two groups of religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, came and crudely and rudely interrupted his teaching. They had caught a woman in the act of adultery and they brought her to the center of the court. Some suggest that she wasn't caught at that moment. But that most likely during the previous evening that this group had been holding her prisoner during the night, waiting for Jesus to show up in order to use her to test him. And he said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? So picture the scene with me this morning. You have Jesus and you have the crowds. You have the Pharisees and you have the scribes and you have this woman right in the center of it all. She's referred to as, she has no name. We don't know what her name is, though she has one for sure. This woman was a sinner. This woman who was an adulterer, this woman who was humiliated and ashamed, this woman who no doubt was quite fearful of what was going to happen and transpire next in her life. Because you see, she's guilty. <laughs> she'd been caught in the act of adultery. There's not speculation here. It's not just rumor. There's no sugarcoating what happened. It's, there was no debating really. The thing, she didn't say not guilty. It happened. 
But something as we study the text doesn't seem quite right. Something about this whole situation doesn't feel right. And the scene was not how things normally played out, especially during that time. You see, the Mosaic law did speak of stoning those caught in adultery, but it referred to both parties, not just a female. For example, Genesis 20 and 10 says, if there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be surely put to death. And then Deuteronomy 22, 24 highlights that the death shall be by stoning, but the focus in the law seems to be primarily on the, you know, the man is, is listed first. It seems like the attention is on him. And that's for a bunch of other reasons because sometimes females, women were considered almost as yeah, that the man owned them. I'll put it that way. But the tone by which this, <clears throat> by which the accusation is brought in this text saying that they had to deal with such women is almost as if it was completely her fault. And it's not surprising since culturally they're living in a misogenic age, an age in which women were mistreated and an age full of prejudicial <clears throat> customs and practices where a woman had very, very little rights. But though women had very little rights and were often mistreated, as I was studying the text, I found out that publicly humiliating a person caught in adultery was in itself a, an unlawful thing to do since they had a court for the trial of such a case. As we, you know, when something happens in our culture, we go to court and, you know, there's procedures and things that are supposed to happen. Even though this is uh, in the religious court, in the, in the, the Jewish court, that looks after the Jewish law, it's the same principle. There's supposed to be a process. Added to that during this time, there's no evidence that death by stoning because adultery was carried out with any sort of regularity at the time of the story. And so those who were accusing the woman of breaking the law were in fact breaking the law themselves by how they were treating this woman. Their purpose was to discredit Jesus and the, this woman was just being used to accomplishment, accomplish that all she was was just a means to an end. They did not care about this woman whatsoever. They did not care about justice being served and about upholding the laws found in the Torah, which, by the way, is the first five books of the Old Testament. They're not so much concerned about justice being served as, as Jesus being trapped in his words. They're not really trying to deal with her. They're trying to deal with Jesus. And that's it. One scholar says, if then Jesus refused to confirm the death penalty, he could be charged with contradicting the law of God and would himself be liable to condemnation. If on the other hand, he confirmed the verdict of the Pharisees, he would lose his reputation for compassion amongst the crowds and the people who were gathered around him. We have to ask the question, since we're looking at the text, where is the man, anyways, who was caught in the very act of adultery? Nowhere to be found. Did he, did he escape? Or was he given a free pass by maybe some of his buddies? Who knows? 
One writer says the fact that only the woman is brought raises suspicions and does not speak well of their zeal for the law of Moses. For if they were really committed, they would have, been, they would have brought the man as well. They would have brought them both and done their homework first, done the work first. But the people had come to learn, to, uh, learn from Jesus and, learn, and to listen to him and were watching this whole thing play out. And it's almost like a, you know, the scenes in a movie where they're just like, okay, what's going on? What's going to happen here? And as this plays out, they were going to learn a very powerful lesson, a lesson that neither they, nor the Pharisees, nor the scribes, nor this woman, nor anyone else would ever forget. You know what? A couple thousand years later, we're still talking about this story and learning from it. Jesus' response at first wasn't verbal. Instead, he stoops down to the ground and he begins to write with his finger. No one really knows for sure what he wrote. It's just speculation what he wrote. Some suggest that he was reminding them about the Ten Commandments that they were written by the finger of God. Some say that, and this was pretty cool, some say that, it was almost like the dun, dun, dun in the movies, you know? Some say that he was writing down their sins. Pride, lust. Go on, writing them down. No one knows for sure what he wrote, but whatever he wrote, it was significant because this is the only place in Scripture that Jesus is recorded as writing anything. Following his writing on the ground, he stands to his feet and responds to them. And he says this, he who is without sin among you, let him be first to throw a stone at her, to cast a first stone. And again, he just goes back to writing. Anger, maybe. Malice. Envy. I don't know. Covetousness would have been cool. But this obviously put the dilemma right back on the accusers of this woman who tried to trap Jesus in their words and discredit him. And Jesus just sort of flipped the, the, the situation right around. And now they're like, oh, he got us. Dirty. You see, the law required that those who accuse someone of sin must first cast a, must cast a stone first. And so what they would do uh, uh, for the go-ahead and stoner would indicate that they were sinless, which is something they, they knew and everybody else knew, that they definitely were not. And to, to not stoner would, would not obey the letter of the law as they understood or as they claimed to understand it. Warren Wiersbe says, instead of passing judgment on the woman, Jesus passed judgment on the judges. And they, they know that he had turned the situation com completely around on them. And now everyone's looking at them. <laughs> what are they going to say? How are they going to respond? And so starting with the oldest, you hear. You start hearing the stones hit the ground. That's all you hear. One by one, 
they start to walk away and they leave Jesus and this woman in the center of the court along with the crowds who have come to learn a lesson from Jesus. And as the crowd is watching and wondering, once again, they go from the woman and then they go back and forth and they're looking at the guys and they're back at the woman and they're back at Jesus and they're like, you can hear a pin drop. He stands up again and says, we're woman. By the way, Jesus wouldn't say that in any sort of derogatory manner. Uh, I'll, I would never say that to my wife for obvious reasons. And if you're a husband here, never ever say that to any. Anyways, he wasn't saying it in a way that was derogatory. He called his own mother woman, and we'll get into all that, what all that means. But anyways, he says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says to her, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Some of you may be aware of Max Sacato, wrote many, many books. Great writer. He wrote a book called Six Hours, One Friday, and it describes this scene. He says, Jesus told the woman to look up. Is there no one to condemn you? And he smiled as she raised her head. She saw no one, only rocks, each one a miniature tombstone to mark the burial place of a man's arrogance. Maybe she expected him to scold her. Perhaps she expected him to walk away from her. I'm not sure, but I I do know this. What she got, she never expected. She got a promise and a commission. Uh, The promise, neither do I condemn you. And the commission, go and sin no more. Of course, Jesus wasn't saying that she would be sinless from now on, but he was telling her, walk away from that lifestyle. Walk with me. Walk with God. Become a God-honoring woman. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. What a picture of the amazing grace, mercy of God on display. Grace simply is defined as unmerited favor. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Aren't you thankful for his grace this morning? And on the flip side of the same coin, mercy is not getting what we deserve. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for his mercy. I'm thankful for his grace. And this woman in the story receives both. And she, along with the crowds, were shocked by Jesus' response. No doubt there were those in the audience who were taking Jesus' words in and, and sort of evaluating in their lives. Maybe they were holding, not holding physical stones, but they were saying the very same thing in their minds. Maybe there's others who said, man, I needed to hear that as well, who felt like a woman. Some were emotional as they see this all play out. Some were just speechless. Didn't know what to say. Never seen anything like it before in their lives. Jesus being full of grace and truth as described earlier in John's gospel, chapter one, he exhibited that perfectly in this story. He showed her grace by not condemning her, but he showed her the truth by, not, by telling her to go and sin no more. His dealing with her puts in mind uh, John 3, 16 and 17, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And this woman who came shame-filled walked away grace-filled by one who was full of grace and truth. And there's 
the story ends and it flips over in John 8 and Jesus continues talking and her, her story sort of comes to an end, but there's more to her story that we can sort of surmise about. You see, you see, the way the story is written gives the sense that, the, that she went and obeyed the command of Jesus and lived out a, a God-honoring life and found the plan and purpose of God to be true in her life and gave her life to the Lord. It's speculation, but that's the way the text is written. It ends on a high note. When thinking of this story as I was preparing the word this week, the ending reminded me as well of Pastor Justin's message a couple of weeks ago as he highlighted Jesus' words to the lawyer who asked, who is my neighbor? And he tells the story of the good Samaritan and then at the end of it, he says, well, who was the neighbor? He says, the one who showed mercy. And then he says, go and do likewise. These two aspects of the text highlighting what, or highlight what living a grace-filled life looks like. First to go and sin no more shows the power of receiving the grace of God. To go and sin no more shows the truth that God can take a life, no matter what that life has done, that, that was headed down the wrong road and completely turned that life around. To go and sin no more shows us that no matter what a person has done, there's not a person on the planet. There's not a person in St. John's on the Avalon Peninsula. There's not a person in this province or this nation who's outside the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of God our Savior. This woman did not deserve a go and sin no more moment. She was guilty. She had done wrong. She had committed adultery. She should have been judged for her wrongdoing. And you know what? It would have been just as served. And if there's a person in the room who for some chance was looking down on this woman and doing what Pastor Bruce said a few weeks ago, going, there's something that you need to realize. Or maybe you're in this room and as I was reading, there's something that you need to realize and about this text and what you need to realize and what I need to realize is that woman is us. That this woman represents us. We are the woman in this story. I am the woman in this story. You see, while we may not have committed the exact same sin as she had committed, Paul said in Romans 3 and 23, he said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just some have sinned or just a few have sinned, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everybody in here. That's everybody in the world. And so each and every one of us here this morning can identify with this woman. We are sinners in need of Christ's salvation. We are deserving of judgment, but instead of judgment, he gives us his grace. Instead of condemnation, he gives us his mercy. Instead of rejecting us, he accepts us and draws us near himself and gives us a new life. As, as Tracy mentioned this morning, we are new creations in Christ because of what he has done. And that's what God can do with the life who comes to him. And Paul captured the amazing grace of God in Ephesians 2, 4 to 9, when he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, for grace, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he may show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And thank God, that's not a, a, of yourselves. It is the what? The gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast what a gift this woman received. 
she received that gift of God of grace, mercy, compassion, forgiveness. You know what? Maybe you're here this morning. We got all sorts of folks that come to church on Sunday. Maybe you're here this morning and like the woman, when she was brought before Jesus, humiliated, embarrassed, you're like her. You're shame-filled this morning. I don't know your story. I may know your name, but I may not know your story. I may not know your past. God knows it all. Maybe you come this morning shame-filled to this house. Maybe you, you're here and you're not proud of your past. Or maybe you're here, you know what? You're not proud of your present. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, can God change my life? Can God take my life and save me and change me and make me into a new creation? Can God give me a purpose and a plan? Can God turn my life around? You don't know the mess I'm in. But you know what? I come with good news this morning because just as he redeemed this woman and gave her a brand new life, Jesus can do the very same thing with your life and turn you around and, 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 so that you can and graciously speak into your life and say to you, go and sin no more. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Receive my grace. Receive my mercy. Walk in the newness of the life that I provide by faith. The second aspect of what living a grace-filled life looks like is to go and do likewise, as we learned a couple weeks ago, which is the response of someone who has received the grace of God. You see, as Jesus sent her on her way, I think more than just being a receiver of grace, he wanted her to be a giver of grace, to extend to others uh, the same grace that she had received herself, to go back into her family and to go back to her friends and to go back into her city, to go back into her neighborhood and embody grace and extend grace and to do for others what Christ had done in her life. Puts in mind, as I read this text, the woman at the well who after encountering Jesus went back into her city and proclaimed to everyone, come see a man who has spoken truth into my life, who has changed my life. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. John 4, 39 shows the end result of that transformation. This is from that city. Many of the Samaritans believed in him and because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. I can only imagine that as she returned to her city and her community, this woman who was before Jesus in this text and shared about what Jesus has done, she too said, come see a man. Come see a man who when I was surrounded by people wanting to take my life, gave me life now and life eternal. Come see a man who has changed my life completely. Come see a man who has accepted me and who has given me his grace and his mercy. Come see a man who made me into a new creation. Come see a man who's changed my life completely. I'm not the same person. Come see this man. His name is Jesus. And just as lives were changed and when the woman at the well went back, lives were changed, I believe, from her testimony. We don't have it recorded. But I can't wait till I get to heaven and have a conversation I'm hoping there's coffee in heaven so I can go grab a coffee and we can get a coffee together and say, hey, can you tell me the rest of the story? Because I'm sure there's more to that story. 
As the worship team returns and as I begin to conclude this message, let me say that that is what living a grace-filled life does. Because as you embody and represent, body and represent the grace of God and show grace to others, you point people to Jesus and say, come see a man who's changed my life. And the result is that others come who, like you, come with their shame and their guilt and their sin, but walk away grace-filled. The other part to, of living a grace-filled life is if you're here and you're holding on a stone, by, there's a lot of pieces and I don't have time to really get into it a lot, but I wanted to bring it out. If you're here and you're holding on to a stone, no doubt like some who have walked away, walked away as crooked <laughs> and as judgmental and even more angry and upset. We know that because as we follow the story, some continue to disagree with Jesus and even at one point they, they picked up stones, going to throw it at him. Because of what he said, but he slipped away because it wasn't his time. Maybe there are some here, maybe there are some there who got the message. I don't know, it doesn't say. And who, like the woman, walked away, hmm, lived a God honoring life, embodying grace, extending grace to others. Who knows? I know that Nicodemus was one of the guys that earlier in John came. To Jesus, maybe there are others. We don't have it recorded. Speculation, but that's where my mind is going as I read this text. But if if they wanted that, they first had to let go of what they were holding on to. Let me ask you this this morning: What are you holding on to that is preventing you from living a grace-filled life? If there's anything in your life, give it to Jesus this morning. Let go of the stones. Let go of whatever stone you have been carrying and be a carrier of grace and receive it into your life and go out into our community and carry it wherever you go. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about our church community, please visit our website, Bethesda.ca, and consider joining us for a gathering soon.